Welcome to another episode from 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. The brutal and bloody fighting at Petersburg had a profound effect on my family in that generation as we lost a brave and determined 26-year-old who was fighting to preserve the Union and defend the cause of liberty. The Civil War in America, as all of you know, was fought between the North and the South between 1861 and 1865 and took a terrible toll on American lives and families. From this war emerged the strongest nation in the world, a nation dedicated to achieving liberty for all, for as long as it takes us to get there. And it's come a long way. Horace was the oldest son of my great-great-grandfather, James Hagedorn. He was born in the town of Spencer, New York, at a place they still call Hagedorn Hill. And when duty called, he signed up like many of his predecessors who had come to America from Germany and built sturdy log cabins which grew into farms, with brothers, cousins, and fathers who fought with the British against raiding Indians, and later fought against the British during the American Revolution at places with names like Saratoga and Yorktown. He enlisted in Company H, 3rd Infantry, New York, on May 14, 1861, and for three years he marched and fought and was eventually promoted to a full sergeant major three days before his death at what they called the Second Battle of Petersburg on the 15th of June, 1864. Horace was born about 1838 and had two sisters, two brothers, and one stepbrother in 1860. The children appearing in the 1860 census were Rebecca Hagedorn, Emma Hagedorn, David, Aaron G., and DeWitt was only six months old at the time. Aaron was my great-grandfather, which makes Horace, his older brother, an uncle. The 3rd New York Volunteer Infantry Regiment was also known as the Albany Regiment. They wore an Americanized zouave uniform, which consisted of a dark blue zouave jacket with red trim, dark blue pantaloons, white gaiters, red fez with a blue tassel, and dark blue zouave vest 
with a red trimming. The third was first garrisoned at Fort Monroe in Hampton, Virginia, a strategic fort located on the Chesapeake Bay near the entrance to the James River and a point at which large numbers of troops would be offloaded from boats and then sent to various destinations. It was from here that this first of two letters from Horace to his younger sister Rebecca was written on July 1st, 1861. Camp Hamilton, Fortress Monroe, Virginia, July 1st, 1861. My dear sister, Though I have written home as frequently as possible to let you all hear from me, none of my letters have been specially to you, for it is impossible to write to all I could wish. This morning is wet, so that we do not come out on drill, which gives a good opportunity to write, which doesn't often occur. These are no days of rest here, except when it is raining, until now there has been but little rain since we came here. There are no war news of importance to write from this quarter, but it is thought quite probable that the first great battle may be fought here. Fortress Monroe is a very important position, which the rebels would like to obtain possession of. It is the strongest fort on this continent, and no force they can send will ever succeed in taking it, if it shall be invested by a sufficient force by the government. Active preparations are making to receive them if the first blow is struck here. Troops are arriving here almost every day and more are expected. Batteries and entrenchments are being constructed at several points, one just in the rear of our camp toward Hampton, so that in case an attack is made by superior force, we can retreat safely to the fort. Still, it is my opinion that they never will attack us, though of course it is well enough to be prepared for them if they do come. It is not likely that we shall do any fighting unless attacked till some time after the 4th. Then, as soon as a sufficient force is received here and everything is ready, there will be an advance upon Richmond. At least this appears to be the intention now. The weather here has been very hot some of the time, but so far I find I can stand it as well as the best of them. I have been trying my hand at cooking, and I will tell you something of that. Our company appoints three cooks every week, one chief cook and two assistants who serve for one week. I received the responsible position of chief with Louis Truesdell and Fred Penny assistants. You will understand that to cook three meals a day for some 70 soldiers keeps one busy. For breakfast, we have crackers, coffee, and fried pork, dinner crackers, beans, and beef soup. Supper crackers, corned beef, rice, and coffee. This is about the regular bill of fare. Sometimes we get fresh beef, and now we get bread twice a week, and tea. The crackers upon which we have lived mostly are not the kind with which we were acquainted at home, but regular bricks made to keep in any climate. We have appetites for anything. A week ago we received a nice box of good things from Owego, sent to George Stratton, Fred Penny, and me. The way we feasted on the cake cheese was a caution you can imagine. There are seven of us in a tent here. I am in with the same ones with whom we tented in New York. We have our tent fixed up the most convenient of any tent on the ground, not excepting the officers. Yesterday we thought we would make a floor in it as the ground is sound and damp. So we went outside the lines and tore down a nice board fence and now we have a floor to sleep on. 
I send you the pass which we had to go outside the guard. We are to have a regimental inspection this forenoon, and then we'll get a month and a half pay in a few days. I expect to send about $15 from home in a check on the Bank of Owego. Write to me as soon as you get this. Tell Sister M to write, and I will write her in a few days. Did you get a couple of photographs sent from New York? Your affectionate brother, Horace. Rebecca was 19, and Emma, her younger sister, was 16. Rebecca was going to Owego Academy, and Emma was still in school in Spencer, New York. In the years to come, they both would emigrate west together by wagon along the Oregon Trail, and Rebecca would be listed as a pioneer of Frontier County, Nebraska, where she was to become a teacher, and Emma would continue west to marry and settle in Boise, Idaho. David was to stay with the farm, while Aaron Janung, my great-grandfather, would later join Rebecca in Curtis, Nebraska, marrying Jenny Bass and becoming a banker. On July 30, 1861, the Albany Regiment was ordered to Baltimore and quartered at Fort McHenry until April 1, 1862. Fort McHenry was the military HQ of Baltimore, which was a crucial spot in the first two years of the war because of communications telegraph lines and railroads from the north and west came through Baltimore and then on to the nation's capital. Although Maryland joined the Union at the start of the war, Baltimore and the people of Maryland were divided in their loyalties. To the Union Army, Baltimore was a southern city and had to be held at all costs. From the garrison at Baltimore, the Albany Regiment moved to Suffolk, Virginia. From May 12, 1862 to July 3, 1863, the town was occupied by 25,000 Union troops, of which the Albany Regiment was a part, under Major General John J. Peck. Peck made his headquarters in the Greek Revival House, now called Riddick's Folly. This 21-room home is a museum today, and graffiti from the occupying soldiers and prisoners can still be seen on the walls. After leaving Suffolk and being sent back, not too many months later, Horace's regiment was involved in the Siege of Suffolk, which occurred April 1 through May 4 of 1863. For the South, it was Longstreet's first command, his job being to forage for food and horses, protect Richmond, and seize the Federal garrison at Suffolk. Longstreet had three divisions of troops from Virginia and North Carolina. Major General John Peck commanded the Suffolk garrison for the Union which was part of Major General John Dix's Department of Virginia. The garrison was manned by one division from the 7th Corps under Brigadier General Michael Corcoran. Once Longstreet approached, another division was borrowed from the 9th Corps under George W. Getty, and a third division was transferred from the Washington defenses. A series of riverboat attacks from the Nanserman River and infantry attacks resulted in a loss of 500 killed or wounded, and the siege of Suffolk disappeared into the history books. The 3rd New York and Horace were then ordered to Folly Island, where it took an active part in the operations against Fort Wagner, the bombardment of Fort Sumter, and the attacks on Charleston, South Carolina in the summer and autumn of 1863 as part of Alfred's Brigade of the 18th Corps. Folly Island was a staging area for the Union troops for the battles of Fort Wagner and Charleston in the summer and fall of 1863. 
There were two battles of Fort Wagner, the second being the best remembered, which was led by the 54th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry Troops under the command of Colonel Robert Gould Shaw, a battle which began on July 18, 1863. The 54th Massachusetts was made up entirely of black soldiers. Colonel Shaw, their white officer, led the 54th Massachusetts on foot while they charged and was killed in the assault. Although a tactical defeat, the publicity of the Battle of Fort Wagner led to further action for black troops in the Civil War, and it spurred additional recruitment that gave the Union Army a further numerical advantage in troops over the South. The Union besieged the fort after the unsuccessful assault. By August 25th, Union entrenchments were close enough to attempt an assault on the advanced rifle pits, 240 yards in front of the battery, but this attempt was defeated. A second attempt by the 24th Massachusetts Infantry on August 26th was successful. After enduring almost 60 days of heavy shelling, the Confederates abandoned it on the night of September 6th and 7th, 1863, withdrawing all operable cannons and the garrison. The 54th was controversial in the North, where many people supported the abolition of slavery, but still treated African Americans as lesser or inferior to whites. Though some claimed blacks could not fight as well as whites, the actions of the 54th Massachusetts demonstrated once again the fallacy in that argument, as this was not the first time blacks ever fought in a war, or even for the United States. William Kearney, an African American and a sergeant with the 54th, is considered the first black recipient of the Medal of Honor for his actions at Fort Wagner in recovering and returning the unit's U.S. flag to the Union lines. After the battle, the Southern soldiers buried the regiment's commanding officer, Robert Gould Shaw, in a mass grave with the African-American soldiers of his regiment, viewing this as an insult to him. Instead, Shaw's family thanked the Southern soldiers for burying Shaw with his men. That site is no longer visible. The land has eroded into Charleston Harbor, and the remains of Colonel Shaw and his men have been washed out to sea by Atlantic hurricanes. This fort and the actions of the 54th played a major part in the film, Glory. One of the final scenes portrays Colonel Shaw and the men of the 54th Massachusetts leading the attack and storming the fort. In October of 1863, the Albany Regiment was returned to Virginia, where it was active in the advance under General Butler in May of 1864, losing five killed, 50 wounded, and seven missing. It fought in the Battle of Drury's Bluff and was then transferred to the 3rd Brigade, 3rd Division, 18th Corps, which moved to Coal Harbor, where it was active until June 12th of 1864. The Battle of Cold Harbor was one of Civil War's most dramatic and decisive engagements. It was a sprawling two-week engagement that left more than 18,000 soldiers killed, wounded, or captured. This is what led to it. In the summer of 1864, the Union Army of the Potomac was fighting its way south towards Richmond, Virginia. In a series of battles collectively known as the Overland Campaign, the Union Army had suffered more than 50,000 casualties, but it also forced Robert E. Lee's hard-bitten Confederate veterans to abandon much of northern Virginia. The small crossroads of Cold Harbor, named after a German tavern that offered cold beer and a safe refuge for travelers, i.e. harbor, just 10 miles north of Richmond, 
became the focal point of the action in late May. From May 31 to June 3rd, Ulysses S. Grant ordered repeated attacks against entrenched Confederate positions, culminating in an enormously bloody repulse on June 3rd. It was on that day, June 3rd, that approximately 6,000 Union soldiers were killed, wounded, or captured during the assault. When the orders for a full-scale assault began to filter through the Army on June 2nd, many Union officers were gravely concerned. Neither Grant nor George Meade, his second-in-command, had personally observed the heavily fortified Confederate line. Furthermore, the orders did not specify a particular target of the attack, and they did not appear to coordinate the efforts of the different parts of the Army. Major General William F. Baldy Smith, commanding the 18th Corps, was aghast at the reception of such an order, which proved conclusively the utter absence of any military plan. Colonel Horace Porter remembered infantrymen attaching name tags to their uniforms for later identification if killed on the field, a precursor to the official GI dog tags introduced in World War I. When the attack went forward at 4.30 a.m. on June 3rd, the soldiers went down like rows of blocks under crushing Confederate fire. The scene was chaotic and terrifying, successive lines mixing into pushing, shoving crowds as tens of thousands of men tried to stay alive in the open fields in front of the seething southern breastworks. Grant suspended the offensive at noon and would later claim to have always regretted that the assault was ever made. The Confederates suffered about 1,500 casualties, losing one man to every four fallen Federals. The massive assault on June 3rd ended with Union soldiers using cups, bayonets, and their hands and feet to dig out rudimentary protection under the mouths of the Confederate guns. These were quickly developed into more elaborate entrenchments, although in some places the opposing lines were less than 75 yards apart. Sharpshooting was particularly fierce for days. Ulysses S. Grant, perhaps unwilling to admit defeat, delayed the process of requesting a formal truce to gather the several hundred wounded that were immobile between the lines. It was not until June 7th that the terms were arranged and Union soldiers ventured into no man's land to recover their comrades. Most of them had already died. One Federal remembered that, I saw no live man lying on this ground. The wounded must have suffered horribly before death relieved them, lying there exposed to the blazing southern sun of days and being eaten alive by beetles at nights. And what was not known at that time was that the Battle of Cold Harbor was Robert E. Lee's last large-scale field victory. Decisively referred to as the King of Spades early in the war, a dig against his perceived proclivity for static defense and entrenchment, Robert E. Lee quickly proved his detractors wrong with a series of audacious maneuvers and correspondingly stunning victories. The successes of the Seven Days, Second Manassas, and Chancellorsville were all sourced in Lee's talent for moving his army with a speed and precision that stymied his Union opponents. At Cold Harbor, the Union Army suffered heavily after Lee guided his men into impregnable positions, threatening the Federal line of advance. By late June, however, less than two weeks after the end of the battle, Lee had been forced to submit to a siege around Richmond and Petersburg. 
he held the cities for another nine months and not only bitterly contested each Union offensive, but also won some battles at places like Reims Station with portions of his army. Most of his army was frozen in place, however, and was absolutely required to man the trenches, or else Petersburg and Richmond would be lost to the Federals. When the line was finally broken, the Army of Northern Virginia's final field campaign was a week-long string of disasters. And another little-known fact, despite the Confederate tactical success, the Battle of Cold Harbor was a strategic turning point in the Civil War, after which there was little chance for overall Confederate victory. Edward Porter Alexander, the Southern artillery officer who orchestrated the guns before Pickett's charge and served as one of Lee and Longstreet's most consulted aides, called the Battle of Cold Harbor our last and perhaps our highest tide. After the suffering of the Overland Campaign, in which more than 50,000 Union soldiers fell in less than two months, Alexander believed that halting Grant's army north of the James River, no nearer Richmond, than his ships might have landed him at the beginning without a loss of a man, would have turned the northern public strongly against further prosecution of the war. Robert E. Lee himself believed that we must destroy this army of Grant's before he gets to the James River. If he gets there, then it will be a siege, and then it will be a mere question of time. Despite the staggering losses at Cold Harbor, Grant managed to withdraw in good order and then deceived the Confederates for critical days as his army crossed the James River and marched towards Petersburg, where Lee's grim prediction was confirmed. After Cold Harbor, Horace's division was transferred to Bermuda 100. This was Horace's second and last letter to his sister Rebecca from Bermuda 100, written May 25, 1864. Dear Rebecca, Being in camp, resting today, the first time in a good while while I have a chance to write you a few lines. You need not suppose, however, from the size of this sheet that it is my intention to write a long letter. We have had active services and a good deal of marching since we left Folly Island. Our regiment was in four days skirmishing and fighting on the Petersburg and Richmond Railroad and the Battle of Proctor's Creek and Drury's Bluff last week. Our loss was 62 men in the regiment. The colonel and our captain were wounded. I was in the thickest and hottest of it, but came out all right. We expect to be at it again in a few days. I received two Owego papers this morning, but have not heard from you in a long time. Your brother, Horace. Over 6,000 men had died in that four-day campaign that included the battles of Proctor's Creek and Drury's Bluff as the Confederates threw the remains of Beauregard's army up against the Federal troops in an effort to protect Richmond. But the Union army was still moving toward Richmond, and closer yet, Petersburg. The division to which Horace's Albany Regiment was attached rejoined the 10th Corps on June 15, 1864, and formed part of the 1st Brigade, 2nd Division, with which it was engaged in the assaults at Petersburg in June, the mine explosion of July 30th. Fort Harrison, and the Darby Town Road. In June of 1864, in a brilliant tactical maneuver, 
Grant marched his army around the Army of Northern Virginia, crossed the James River, unopposed, and advanced his forces to Petersburg. Knowing that the fall of Petersburg would mean the fall of Richmond, Lee raced to reinforce the city's defenses. The mass of Grant's army arrived first. On June 15th, the first day of the Battle of Petersburg, some 10,000 Union troops under General William F. Smith moved against the Confederate defenders of Petersburg, made up of only a few thousand armed old men and boys, commanded by General P.G.T. Beauregard. However, the Confederates had the advantage of formidable physical defenses, and they held off the overly cautious Union assault. The next day, more Federal troops arrived, but Beauregard was reinforced by Lee, and the Confederate line remained unbroken during several Union attacks occurring over the next two days. By June 18th, Grant had nearly 100,000 men at his disposal at Petersburg, but the 20,000 Confederate defenders held on as Lee hurried the rest of his Army of Northern Virginia into the entrenchments, knowing that further attacks would be futile. But satisfied to have bottled up the Army of Northern Virginia, Grant's army dug trenches and began a prolonged siege. Authors C. Brian Kelly and Ingrid Smyer, in their book, Best Little Stories from the Civil War, write, As the guns began their deadly drumbeat, only boys and old men were on hand to fight back. In a few days, 90,000 troops were wheeled up against the 10,000 defenders assembled here. And yet, no lovelier day ever dawned than June 9, 1864, one of the surviving women later recalled of the first salvos. Like all in Petersburg, even like the enemy at its gate, she was unprepared for the longest siege of any American city. For ten months, they would endure shelling, blockade, economic deprivation, starvation balls, death in the trenches, lack of food, the disappearance of dogs, cats, even rats, inflated prices, daily bombardment, and death in the streets and backyards. It lasted until April 2nd or 3rd, 1865, just days before Appomattox. Robert E. Lee, accompanied by his horse, Traveler, was there much of the time to direct the defense of Petersburg. The siege today is not so well known as the Battle of the Crater, the Union-triggered explosion beneath Confederate trenches just outside that city that resulted in a Union debacle. It would be a very personal struggle for survival as well, for now Grant's big guns began to fire directly on the city. They went on for hours that first day, June 9th, and that was only the beginning of almost daily shelling for the next 10 months. By the middle of the summer, both armies had dug in for a prolonged siege. To those trapped in Petersburg, the countryside for miles around looked like one enormous camp. The really devastating event for Petersburg, no longer the major southern trade and industrial center it once was, was the siege, including the daily bombardment by the Union forces outside the walls. Many have written of its effects. As soon as the enemy brought up their siege guns or heavy artillery, which was only a few days after taking their positions, they opened up on the city with shell without giving the slightest notice or without giving opportunity for the removal of non-combatants, the sick, the wounded, or the women and children out of the range of fire, wrote John H. Claiborne, a Confederate doctor here at the time. 
To persons unfamiliar with the infernal noise made by the screaming, the ricocheting, and the bursting of the shells, it is impossible to describe the terror and the demoralization which was immediately created. Indeed, we can wonder if any American city has ever endured as much. Besieged and starved of supplies, pounded by artillery day after day, with skirmishes and fights on every side, the Confederates were vastly outnumbered by the enemy in the not-so-distant trenches. The brave but dwindling army, its beloved commander, the women and children, all trapped for ten months. In recent years, the city has been largely forgotten, but to U.S. Grant and Robert E. Lee it was a prize to be sought or held at nearly any cost, for it fed the Confederate capital of Richmond from a hub of far-flung railroad supply lines. Many people actually starved to death during the siege, said Petersburg's director of tourism, John R. Elliott, in 1978. The amazing thing is what Americans did to an American city. Eventually, the pigeons disappeared from the street, then the cats and dogs, and then the rats. The suspicion grew that most of them found their way into somebody's stew pot. It happened in the best of families. Soon to come were starvation parties and dances, with hosts and guests ignoring the lack of any refreshments. Wrote Army Surgeon Claiborne later on, Ball followed ball, and the soldier met and danced with his lady love at night, and on the morrow danced the dance of death in the deadly trench. In all, 42,000 Union men and 28,000 Confederates died or suffered wounds before the siege was lifted. The end came when Grant captured 3,000 Confederates and seized the last remaining rail line into Petersburg on April 1, 1865. After the rebel lines collapsed on April 2nd, Lee withdrew, and on April 3rd, Grant and his troops entered the tired and tattered city. We sat all day in the front room, wrote one Southern survivor, watching the splendidly equipped host as it marched by on its way to capture Lee. Our hearts sank within us. The triumphant Union forces issued a small but real newspaper on the day of their takeover. Grant's Petersburg Progress. Headlines. Petersburg, ours. We are here. Hallelujah. Richmond fell the same day as Petersburg. At Appomattox, six days later, Lee's army, the heart of the Confederacy, collapsed. In those six days, Abe Lincoln himself had visited Petersburg. Petersburg's own Daily Express got back on its feet, and on April 13th it published this temperate advice for its readers. Our cause, whatever may have been the varied opinion of its justice or demerits, is now lost, hopelessly, irretrievably lost, and it is no less the part of duty than of wisdom to submit quietly and willingly to the powers that be Acknowledge the supremacy of the flag that waves over us and strive under the blessing of God to secure all the happiness and prosperity that the symbol of the United States can confer. Fine thoughts, except that on that next day, April 14th, Lincoln was assassinated and all such fine sentiments of April 13th were suddenly and forever skewed. The fight for and siege of Petersburg had cost the Union 42,000 men. One of these was Horace Hagedorn, who died that first day of actual fighting when 10,000 Union troops stormed the fort at Petersburg Heights. 
And now we look back at a war that took over 600,000 lives and shattered just as many families. And many still ask, why was it fought? And what did we gain? When asked, most college students today can't tell you correctly what years the Civil War in America was fought, or the World Wars I and II for that matter, who fought them, and why they were fought. I decided to search the internet to see why the Civil War matters now, and this is what I found. One New York Times writer offered his opinion that the Civil War really doesn't matter anymore because, and I'm paraphrasing, it has nothing to do with our new diversified society, a society made stronger by the 1965 Immigration Act. Another writer points out that the Civil War actually did give us many things, beginning with the end of slavery, perhaps the worst disgrace in the nation's history. It also gave us hospitals, ambulances, and veterans' homes. The Civil War paved the way for Americans to live, learn, and move about in ways that it seemed all but inconceivable just a few years earlier. With these doors of opportunity open, the United States experienced rapid economic growth. Immigrants also began seeing the fast-growing nation as a land of opportunity and began coming here in record numbers. For many years, Southern lawmakers had blocked the passage of land-grant legislation, but they weren't around after secession, and in 1862, Congress passed a series of land-grant measures that would forever change America's political, economic, and physical landscape. Some examples. The first transcontinental railroad, also known as the Pacific Railroad. The world's first transcontinental line built between 1863 and 1869. It was originally intended to bind California to the Union during the Civil War. To build the line, the Union Pacific and Central Pacific Railroads were granted 400-foot rights of way, plus 10 square miles of government-owned land for every mile of track built. Then there was the Homesteading Act, which was enacted in 1862, and that provided that every adult citizen, or intended citizen, who had never borne arms against the U.S. government, could be granted 160 acres of surveyed government land after living on it and making improvements to it for five years. After the Civil War, Union soldiers could deduct the time they had served from the residency requirement. And the land-grant college system, the Moral Land-Grant Act, authorized the sale of public lands in every state to underwrite the establishment of colleges dedicated to agricultural and mechanical arts. It also required the teaching of military tactics. At the time, the new law would give rise to such institutions of higher learning as Michigan State, Texas A&M, and Virginia Tech. That same year brought another innovation, a national paper currency that would literally bankroll the rapidly expanding government and at the same time grease the wheels of commerce from coast to coast. The Civil War also gave us Decoration Day. The first Memorial Days were group events organized in 1865 in both the South and North by black and white, just a month after the war ended. Quickly evolving into an annual tradition, these decoration days were usually set for early summer when the most flowers would be available to lay on the headstones. Decoration days helped the torn nation heal from its wounds. People told and retold their war stories, honored the feats of local heroes, reconciled with former foes, 
After World War I, communities expanded the holiday to honor all who have died in military service. Although the official national observance didn't begin until 1971. Usually, Decoration Day, which is now called Memorial Day, falls on the last few days of May, marking the beginning of the summer season. No matter where you are on Memorial Day, a national moment of remembrance takes place at 3 p.m. that day. It also created two distinct political parties in America, the Republican Party and the Democrat Party. The Civil War was also the first war in which people at home could absorb battle news before the smoke cleared. Eyewitness accounts by reporters and soldiers were relayed via telegraph to the country's 2,500 newspapers, printed almost immediately, and then read voraciously by citizens desperate to know how their boys were faring. Add to that photography, which was still in its infancy, but the Civil War was the first conflict recorded by photographers, the most famous of whom was Matthew Brady. And the horrible vestiges of the Civil War were brought to life through photography. The Civil War also provided three amendments to the U.S. Constitution, all ratified within five years of the end of the Civil War. The 13th Amendment, 1865. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. The 14th Amendment in 1868. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. And the 15th Amendment in 1870. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Gender would follow later. Before the Civil War, the concept of liberty and justice for all meant little unless you were white and male. Going beyond the abolition of slavery, the 14th and 15th Amendments were the first extensions of citizenship and voting rights to minority groups. Of course, women went without a vote until 1920, but the post-war law set a precedent that eventually would lead to suffrage for all adults. Imperfect in practice over the next 100 years, voting rights finally gained protection through the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which was only passed by a majority of Republicans. It took the war between the states to make us one nation, indivisible. Before 1861, the United States were loosely tied entities and always described as a plural noun, as in, the United States are in trade with France. The war's bloodiest battle came at Gettysburg in 1863, with 51,000 casualties in just three days. Although the Union stopped Confederate General Robert E. Lee's northern invasion, young men's bodies littered the farms and gardens that had turned into a battleground. Was the preservation of these United States worth the cost in blood? At a memorial for the dead, Lincoln intentionally called on the Union to persevere for a single national ideal. That we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain. That this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. The effect of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address 
just 272 words from beginning to end, was radical and immediate. By accepting the Gettysburg Address, its concept of a single people dedicated to a proposition, we have been changed. Because of it, we live in a different America. But the shift was more than a statesman's creation. It was also forged in the experience of hunger, disease, blood, and death, shared for four years by the Union and Confederacy alike. Tellingly, the tradition of Civil War reenactments began even before the conflict had ended, as returning soldiers recreated battlefield scenes at home to educate the citizenry and pay tribute to their fallen comrades. Ken and Rick Burns, in their introduction to the book The Civil War, write, Some events so pervasively condition the life of a culture that they retain the power to fascinate permanently. They become the focus of myth and the anchor of meaning for a whole society. The Civil War became our anchor. Ever since, whether big government or small government, whether doves or hawks, black or white, we've all been one thing, Americans. I personally hope that never ends. To me, that's what Horace fought for. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. You can catch all our episodes at www.1001storiespodcast.com or chime in at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes. If you enjoy our stories, please share them with friends. That's how we grow. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.
as dauntless and as courage ne'er would lack. What contending for the honor of our dear and cherished flag? Tell me, tell me, weary soldier, will he never come again? Did he suffer? my brother in the battle when the flag of Aaron came to the rescue of our banner and protection of our fame while the fleet from off the waters poured out terror and dismay till the bold and daring foe fell just like leaves on when the bugle called to battle and the cannon deeply roared, how oh, I wish I could have seen him draw his sharp and shining sword. Tell me, tell me, weary soldier, will he never come again? Did he suffer death or wounded? Did he die?